I want to start by inviting your attention to this anecdotal conversation that took its rounds in the internet a few years ago. You may have seen it. It's a, it's a fictional conversation between uh, a captain of a U.S. aircraft carrier and his counterpart. And it goes something like this. I want to read this to you. I don't want to mess this up. On a dark, foggy night, a ship came upon the light of another vessel. The captain of the ship radioed his counterpart and said, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And quick came a reply through the crackly radio that said, We recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. So the captain decided to stand his ground and he, say, he, he repeated and said, This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And quickly came the reply saying, You divert your course. By this time, the captain was enraged. And so he he shouted into the radio and said, this is the aircraft carrier USS Abram Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That is one five degrees to the north. And then there was silence. And then there was a voice that responded saying, well, Captain, it's really your call because this is a lighthouse. So, I say this because for the past, uh, past few weeks, we've been, we've been listening to, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been listening to the, the voice of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the voice of the preacher has been calling us and reasoning with us, and he's, uh, he reminds us of the, he reminds us of our fallenness, of our humanness. He reminds us of the unpredictability of life in a broken world under the sun. And he's been challenging, just like the, the voice on the, from the lighthouse, he's been challenging our carefully curated realities. And he's been calling us to divert the course of our lives based on a reality that is eternal and that is beyond the sun from the Lord. And so today, as we continue to look at this book, there's a little bit of debate around this, but most, most scholars or many scholars would agree that the voice of the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, the voice of the preacher from the book of Ecclesiastes is none other than King Solomon, the wisest, the richest king to ever live on the face of the earth. So King Solomon decides to have this, um, well, he, he, in, a, in a quest for wisdom, to understand wisdom and folly, and in a quest to understand what the good life is, he decides to do this very comprehensive, elaborate good life experiment. And so he decides to nose dive straight into all kinds of different indulgences, ranging from pleasure to honor, ranging from service to wealth. He, he decides to nose dive deep into all kinds of indulgences. And then he surfaces back up and he gives us his grand report, his grand conclusion that everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless under the sun. So today we will continue to look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, we, will, we will continue to listen to his voice as he warns us. He warns us of the vanity of two things that often gives us the promise of the good life, which is work and wealth. Work and wealth. So in a, in a recent poll conducted by the Pew Research to see how Americans measure, as far as wealth and work is concerned, how Americans measure with their global counterparts, this, this was the results. More than half, that is 56% of Americans, would, would be considered to be in the higher income bracket compared to the global standard. 
And then there was another 32% of Americans who would, who would be in the upper middle class bracket compared to their global counterparts. In short, nine out of 10 Americans have a higher standard of living and have more wealth and more opportunities of work than people across the globe. Now, it is interesting that you can contrast the results of this study with another study. There's another study that is conducted by the United Nations. It is called the World Happiness Report. It's a real report. I'm not making this up. You know, so you can check it out. It's called the World Happiness Report. It is a, it is a study that is conducted to measure the happiness index or the satisfaction index of people living across the globe. And it is, it is very surprising that the increase of work opportunities and the increase of wealth did not necessarily translate into satisfaction or happiness in our context. On the contrary, our, the score for anxiety and the score for restlessness and the score for depression were higher when, it, when, when we compare our context in this study. It, it reminds me of the words of uh, the comedian and actor Jim Carrey who says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamt of so they can see that that's not the answer. What would take, what would take for us to be satisfied? What would take for us to be happy? What would take for us to find meaning and purpose? Do we need to do do we need do we need to amass more wealth do we need to have more work opportunities or work with more vigor what would what would it require for us to find joy for us to find meaning listen to the words of the wise preacher as he drops some wisdom on the on the topic of uh, work and wealth if you have your bibles grab it and uh, turn to the book of ecclesiastes you can open it right to the center and go to the right and you'll find, it'll be in the book of ecclesiastes and we'll start with uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. Then we'll read a little bit of uh, chapter 5. So it's a long portion of scripture. Hang with me as we read this together. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up in despair over all the toil of my labor under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, where, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his herd. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go back again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. The, the preacher, the wise preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes who says this, he's not, he's not a stranger to wealth. He's one of the most wealthiest people to ever inhabit the face of the earth. He's got more wealth than all of us in this room put together. In fact, I think it is safe to say that at the point of time when Ecclesiastes is written, he, or at the point of time when Solomon lived in history, he owned most of the known world. He's that wealthy. And then you have this man who is a, who's not a stranger to work. He's got more accomplishments and he's got more achievements and more accolades under his belt than all of us put together. He's got more, 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 more an impressive resume than any other king that was before or after him. And after, after all his wisdom and after all his experience with wealth and work, he concludes that it's meaningless. There's a chasing after the wind. He uses the Hebrew word hevel to describe his conclusion. The Hebrew word that, that, that translates to meaninglessness or something that is elusive, a chasing after the wind. So today, from the passage that we just read, Solomon gives us a list of vexations that comes with work and wealth. A list of vexations that makes him arrive in the conclusion that all is vanity, all is meaningless. So I just want us to take some time to read through or look through the list of vexation that he gives us. The first one that we see here is the craving of money and the vexation of evil. The craving of money and the vexation, sorry, the craving of money and the vexation of toil. The craving of money and the vexation of toil. Solomon is, he, he is very plain and he, he plainly tells us that the love for money is a disordered love. It is a love that is out of order in our heart. It is a, it's a kind of love that can easily transition to a lust or a craving for more, a craving that never can be satisfied. Money has a, money has a unique grip upon the human heart because money has the, a powerful ability to, to, to appeal to our, our fallen nature, to appeal to the lust and the desires of our fallen nature. And sometimes it gives us an illusion. Sometimes it gives us this idea that a, a false, false idea of, or, or a false sense of security or a false sense of control or a false sense of identity, especially with all the things that it can get for us. And this, is, this feeds the craving more, the craving more and more. It's a subtle but strong grip. Look at the words of uh, Pastor Timothy Keller from the New York City. He says this about the allure of money upon the human heart. He says, money is one of the most counterfeit gods there is. When it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lusts. And it brings you to put it ahead of all the other things we become blind to our own hearts. We become blind to our own hearts. Have you noticed that anytime we speak about greed or anytime we speak about the hold of money upon the heart, 
Most people can think about at least one person that struggles with it, but we conveniently exclude ourselves from that struggle. And I think that is where that is where the strength of the grip of the counterfeit god of money lies in its subtlety to go undetected within the human heart, within the folds of the human heart. And there it starts to grow in its influence and there it starts to grow in its appetite for more. The one who is chasing after money, the one whose life is, life is uh, built around the lust for money, he will never have enough money to satisfy him. Look at the example of uh, John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the most uh, wealthy people to live in our country. And uh, in one of the interviews, a reporter asked him, a reporter asked him, sir, how much money would be enough money for you? And he famously responded back and said, just a little bit more. Money has a, a way of building a, a craving in our heart that just cannot be satisfied. Now, the, the counterfeit God of money requires worship. The counterfeit God of money requires sacrifice. And the temples in which we worship the counterfeit God of money is in the temple of toil or the temple of overworking. Now, it is easy for us to read a passage like this and dismiss that as philosophical or dismiss that as only relevant for that part of history. But if you take, a, if you take an honest inventory of where we are, in this moment of history, if we take an honest inventory of life in the past decade, in the past 10 years, we can see that there's, a, there's an increase in the amount of workplace violence that is reported. There is increase in the amount of uh, road rage incidents during rush hour traffic. There is increase in the amount of, uh, of or, or there is an increase in the demand of uh, all-day childcare for children. And there is an increased pressure that schools are facing to come up with more after-school activities to keep children engaged in our country as their parents work long hours. All of these things are artifacts of the vexation of toil, which is very real, very present, and very alive in our generation, in our culture, in this moment in history. Now Solomon uh, does not stop there. He, he calls us to consider another vexation. This is the vexation of weariness. The vexation of weariness. In the in the famous words of the late philosopher, Notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. I told my wife that I'll try to say this. I, I, uh, you guys just witnessed history. I think I'm the first Indian preacher to make a Notorious B.I.G. reference. So there you go. So Solomon tells us about the next vexation, which is the vexation of weariness. The lust for money demands toil. And when the lust for money and toil comes together, it, it wears the human soul out. The lust for money has, has the, the ability to, to rob us of our, the God-given gift of rest and sleep. Now, I don't mean lazy sleep and slumber. I mean the kind of sleep that you enjoy after a hard day's work. Sleep is actually a gift from the Lord. God has given us, God has given us sleep so that it reminds us of our finiteness. After a, after a hard day's work, when we wake up in the morning, you know, it is, there has to be worship in our heart to remember, to be reminded that there is only one who does not sleep nor slumber. That's not you and that's not me. And he is in, 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 on his throne in heaven. Because he is on his throne, we can sleep. We can enjoy the gift of rest. It's interesting here that the same study that I was referring to earlier, it shows us that in spite of higher income and wealth, 
we have the lowest score reported for the amount of time we take off or the rest we get. If you just look at the, the recent sale, if you just uh, study the, the spike in the sale of uh, uh, sleep aids and sleep-inducing drugs in the past few years, this is another artifact for the weariness of the, so the, the, the vexation of weariness. And then Solomon tells that in addition to this, we also have, we, uh, with, with increased wealth comes increased expenses. And then there is also all the people that are vying for your money. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a, there's a really depressing show in, uh, there are many depressing shows in, on TV, but particularly depressing one is, uh, it's called The Curse of the Lottery. You know, I have, uh, I, I like to watch depressing, you know, shows on TV. And the, the Curse of the Lottery is a show that, that chronicles the life of lottery winners. Everyday hardworking people. Everyday normal hardworking people who are, who, who find themselves having a windfall of millions of dollars all of a sudden. And it's really tragic to see how their entire life comes apart. It's dismantled. And most of, the, most of the stories sadly end up in most of the people taking their own lives because they can't manage or they end up in poverty. They end up developing new addictions. They end up losing relationships that they've invested years of time and energy in. The lust of money can actually swallow us, chew us and spit us out. Then, then Solomon doesn't stop there. He shows us another vexation. This is the vexation of uh, unpredictability and the vexation of impermanence. The vexation of unpredictability and impermanence. Now, no matter how good we are at planning, no matter how, how good we are at forecasting, all of us will still be affected by the unpredictability of life. Suffering and, and, and difficulty and trials are just a revolving door that all of us will have to walk through. So no matter how good we are at planning, we are not immune from the, from the vexation of unpredictability. Solomon shows us this by giving us an example. He draws, us an, exa- he draws a, uh, an illustration of a man who spent, who spent all, his energy in mar- uh, all his energy amassing wealth. And he hoarded his wealth. And he had a lot of wealth. And then because of, a tr- because of a tragic turn of events, we don't know what exactly happens, but uh, scripture says that uh, due to a bad venture, he ended up losing everything that he had worked for. And he, his, the, the loss was so great that he did not even have an inheritance to give his children. This is the, la- this is the highest value in that culture. And it says that he was, he, had, he was completely depleted of all that he had. He loses everything. None of us are immune to the vexation of unpredictability. The, the co-brother of Jesus, James, reminds us of this truth in the New Testament. He, sell, he uh, tells us this in James chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's a good reminder for our hearts this morning. Then there is the vexation of impermanence. Now, if we are honest, all of us want to be a part of something that will last forever. Jesus, God has created us with a, with a slice of eternity in our heart that we want to be a part of something that is permanent, that is something that is lasting forever. But we all know that on this side of eternity, nothing will last forever. Everything, everything will go through the frustration of the vexation of impermanence. 
Solomon, Solomon talks about how one man works hard his entire life and his heir may come and lose everything that he has toiled for. This is, this is actually, history tells us that this proved to be true for Solomon's life. Because after Solomon came his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, he squandered all of Solomon's wealth. And it just took one generation for 10 by 12th of Solomon's kingdom to be completely depleted by his son Rehoboam. The frustration and the vexation of impermanence. Now, impermanence does not just affect wealth, but impermanence also affects, uh, also affects our labor, our work. A case in point is uh, the beautiful monument called Taj Mahal. Taj Mahal is a beautiful monument in India. It's a part of the seven wonders of the world. And it's a, it's a monument that, that uh, King Shah Jahan built, a Mughal emperor called Shah Jahan built. And he, he wanted to, the big idea was to build this monument that will immortalize his love for his wife, Mamtas. And so he builds this beautiful structure, very intricate architecture. And he, he's so obsessed with this that, that he even chops off the hands of the architects that builds this because he does not want a replica to be made. And he builds this beautiful monument and his idea is that every generation would see and would marvel the legacy that he's left behind, that, the, the immortalization of the love that he has for his wife. But if you go to Agra today, it's a beautiful and impressive structure, but it's lost its original glory. And it's got a fading glory. And you can see that as the British left India, you can see that a lot of the, lot of the precious jewels that Shah Jahan you know, toiled for and, and uh, embedded the walls with are gone. There's big holes in those gaps there. And this, in spite of the best efforts of the government to maintain it and protect it as a historical site, it's a fading glory. It's not going to last forever. And this is true about all of us, all of our works. None of our works escape the vexation of impermanence. So no one is, no one is immune to this vexation, the vexation of toil, the vexation of impermanence, the vexation of weariness and unpredictability. So if this is true, where do we go from here? What do we do? Do we stop working? Do we abandon all of our wealth? Where do we go from here if this is true? Well, thanks be to God that, that King Solomon, after a grim assessment of uh, the vanity of work and wealth, he gives us a grander way. He gives us a better way. He tells us to view work and wealth as gifts that comes from the hand of the Lord. He tells us to consider it and enjoy it as gift that comes from the Lord. And we are to enjoy it in a way that, that it, our enjoyment does not terminate on itself, but our enjoyment will point out to the goodness and kindness of the one that is beyond the sun, God, the giver of all good gifts. This is, what, this is how we were originally designed to enjoy things. If you, if you consider the Genesis account of creation, if you would uh, look at the first uh, three chapters of uh, the Bible in the book of Genesis, we see that God created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And God calls Adam and Eve to steward the Garden of Eden. And God calls them to tend and cultivate the Garden of Eden. So work was, the, work was a part of the original design of God. And God called Adam and Eve to work the garden. And they were to, they were to engage in this work out of the empowerment that they received from their identity and the security that they got as image bearers of God, from God. And we see that by the time we reach chapter 3, in a, in a willful act of treason, rebellion against God, Adam and Eve breaks the one commandment that God gave them. 
And as a result of this, sin enters into God's created world. And we see here that, uh, that, uh, that the Bible scholars call this the fall of man. And we, we see that from that point onwards, all the children of Adam and Eve, that's all of us in this room, we struggle with this bent of our heart to find worth, value, and significance in creation instead of the creator. We are, the bent of our heart is to look to things that are created and ask those things to define us, ask those things to give us significance. Work and wealth, work and wealth is included. Work and wealth is included under the curse of sin. And work and wealth, uh, uh, work and wealth is now twisted because of sin. And we tend to look at work and look at wealth and ask, demand it to do a thing that it is never designed to do, which is to give us value, which is to tell us who we are. God in his infinite mercy looks at our predicament and he, he does not abandon us. In his mercy and kindness, he sends us a rescuer from beyond the sun. He sends us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ enters time and space and is born of a virgin, born in the likeness of man. And Jesus, Jesus he rejects and he abandons the riches of heaven. He, he completely empties himself and he becomes poor and he, he becomes destitute and he, he walks this, this life, this perfect life that you and I are restrained by our sinful nature to, to walk out. And he dies in our place for our sins on a Roman cross. And by emptying himself, by becoming poor through his poverty, he makes us rich towards God. He makes us rich in our experience of God's grace. He makes us rich in our experience of God's love. He makes us rich in our experience of God's forgiveness. Jesus empties himself out and through his poverty, many sons and daughters are made rich towards God. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, sorry, chapter 8 verse 9. He tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, this means that we no longer need to turn to wealth to tell us who we are. We no longer need to t- turn to our possession or, or our bank account to define who we are, to, to give us identity. Because we find value, worth, and, and, and identity in Jesus Christ. We bec- Jesus Through his poverty, he makes us his treasure. We are the reward of his suffering. This is why when Christians gather together, they they sing songs like, How deep the Father's love for us, how was beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You and I become the treasure of God in Christ. Jesus also rescues us from the vexation of toil or the vexation of work. Now we can rightly relate to work because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ frees us that we no longer need to turn to work for our significance. We get that from Jesus. In addition to that, we no longer need to turn to work for our security. This means that even if we don't land our dream job, our lives would be okay. Our lives would not implode. Even if, we, if we, even if we don't yield a certain result in a certain season, that's not the end of life. Because our work does not define us. Jesus does. This means that as painful as it is, a loss of job does not mean that God is absent. A loss of job, walking through a season of a loss of job does not mean that God has abandoned us. 
the nearness of Jesus is present because of the finished work of the, of the cross. And in addition to this, uh, through the gospel, Jesus frees us. He frees us now to do what he has called us to do faithfully and with all of our heart and to use our influence well. Because we, we do what God has called us to do, not to gain his favor, not to gain his love, but out of an experience of the freedom of his love. And then finally, Jesus redeems work. Jesus redeems the purpose of work that was lost because of the fall. And Jesus recovers work back to the Garden of Eden. Now you and I, no matter what you do, you may be a barista in this room, you may be a CEO in this room, you may be a, a, a social worker or a teacher, whatever sphere of influence that you have that God has called you to over our city, you can do that with the assurance that if you belong to Jesus, you are partnering with God in his redemptive, restorative purpose and plan over our city. God calls us, God redeems work and ascribes value and worth so that we can do work diligently without looking at it to define us. So as we, as we close today, if you are in this room and if you, God has given you resources, if you would say that you are wealthy, a couple of things. I want to remind you that Jesus has rescued you from the vexation of toil. He has rescued you from the, the, the vanity of wealth. He's called you to enjoy what he has given you. He's called you to enjoy it in a way that it gives, brings glory and honor to the one who has given the resources to you. He's called you to be a good steward of the resources that he's given you. He's called you to be mindful of, 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 of your brothers and sisters that are under-resourced. He's called you to partner with him in the work of the kingdom of God that is unfolding on this side of eternity. He's called you to walk in the freedom of being loved and known and adopted by God because of Jesus Christ. If you're in this room and you would say that you do not have a lot of resources, I want to remind you that you, that you are not defined by lack. You're defined by, you're defined by the words of Jesus Christ who looks at you and calls you his beloved. You're defined by Christ. So as we, as we close today, wealth and work. Wealth and work finds its purpose when it finds its place in the gospel and when we approach it as the recipients of God's grace. Can we all stand together?